our theme for the month of January is integrity, which has a lot of pieces to it, doesn't it? Uh, as always, on the first Sunday of the month, we've included the Soul Matters Sharing Circle spiritual questions uh, that, that invite us into understanding ourselves with respect to integrity. And perhaps you'll find, if you, if you pay some mind to those questions, that they connect to some of the things I'll be sharing with you in, in that, this morning's message. Our invocation this morning comes from a beloved friend and colleague, the Reverend Martha Valentin, and it is called Embracing My Cultures. Because you see, we make one another welcome in these places of covenant and community, but we also are called to make all of ourselves welcome in the search for integrity, we are seeking wholeness in ourselves and in the world in which we live. The Reverend Marta says, embracing my cultures begins with every Puerto Rican bowl of rice and beans I feed my body. It gives sustenance to my soul like the Latin rhythms that stem from the eye of my heart. It continues lavishly garnished with GLBT rainbow spices and a side of feminist fierceness, which insists on the yes of my life. Then it all comes together at the Unitarian Universalist table where as a minister, I am careful to be authentically, multiculturally inclusive. In order for me to be me, I must embrace all of my cultures and simply ask the same of you. Our reading this morning comes from a, a powerful young prophet and activist whose name is Adrienne Marie Brown. Perhaps you've heard of her. And this is a, a part of... Um, a, 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 passage from a book, recent book of hers, called Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good. She says, we begin learning to lie in intimate relationships at a very early age. Lie about the food your mother made to avoid punishment as you swallow your tears. About loving this Valentine's Day gift about the love you want and how you feel. Most of this is taught as heteropatriarchy 101. Men love one way, women another, and we have to lie to impress and catch one another. Women are still taught too often to be submissive, diminutive, obedient, and later, nagging and caregiving not to be peers, emotionally complex powerhouses loving other women and trans bodies. These mistruths and gender norms are self-perpetuating, affirmed by magazines and movies, and girded at family dinner tables. We also learn that love is a limited resource, and that the love we need and the love we want is too much. 
we learn that we are too much. We learn to shrink, to lie about the whole love we need, settling with not quite good enough in order to not be alone. We have to engage in an intentional practice of honesty to counter this socialization. We need radical honesty, learning to speak from our root systems about how we feel and what we want. Speak our needs and listen to others' needs. To say, I need to hear that you miss me. When you're high all the time, it's hard for me to feel your presence. Or, I lied. Or the way you talked to that man made me feel unseen. Or your jealousy makes me feel like an object and not a partner. The result of this kind of speech is that our lives begin to align with our longings. And our lives become a building block for authentic community and ultimately a society that is built around true need and real people, not fake news and <laughs> bullshit norms. She said it, not me. <laughs> I was going to let the Holy Spirit decide whether or not I went with the fall, you know, or not. It's not my fault. <laughs> It's always good to blame the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, the truth is, I, I, as far back as I can remember in my life, I knew that there were things I wasn't supposed to say. I knew that there were areas that I wasn't supposed to talk about. And many of those were benign, and some of those were not. Some of them were secrets that I, like many of us, was taught to keep. And some of them were simple sort of social lubrication, right? You don't tell your future mother-in-law that she can't cook. <laughs> Even after 30 years of her being your mother-in-law, maybe you still can't tell her, you can't cook, girl. But at some point, and this is the invitation to all of us this morning, at some point on this continuum between the benign, even loving statement, no, that outfit makes you look great, to the more difficult kinds of statements where you don't say, or where you say, I'm fine, and you're really not. Somewhere along that continuum, our integrity gets compromised. And I, for the purposes of our conversation this morning, I'm going to say to you that I believe integrity is, is indeed about truth-telling. And it is indeed about what Adrienne Marie Brown calls radical honesty, the honesty that comes from the roots of our being. 
Later on in this month, we'll talk about the risk of truth-telling. But I'm also going to say to you that I believe that this encompasses, this notion of integrity encompasses something that is perhaps bigger in our lives. It is our ability to feel whole. Our ability to feel and be integrated, made whole by truth one day at a time, by truthful living one day at a time. By leaning into, over the course of our lives, by leaning into what is our authentic self. Which might have been one thing when we were 15 or 80. But as we grow, that authenticity grows too. Adrian Marie Brown's invitation is specific to a, a certain kind of lie or a certain kind of compromise to our integrity. I'll come to that more again in a, in a, in a moment. But the truth is, Wherever it is along that continuum that our integrity becomes compromised and starts to shut down, at that moment, even if it's a small moment, at that moment, our capacity for growing toward the sunshine of the spirit becomes compromised. Her invitation teaches us that doing, behaving with integrity, which often means doing the right thing, which can often make us very unlikable, is <laughs> not just about being right, but it's about joy. It's actually about pleasure. It's actually about feeling as good as we can feel, living in our own skin, no larger, no smaller, not shrinking, not trying to fit the spaces. Are you following me? The spaces we think we have to fit into. I love the story of the missing piece. It's extremely weird, but I love that story. Because this whole idea that we, so many, I won't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. I, I learned to feel and to believe that there was something missing in me. And I searched for that thing that was missing, and I searched for it outside of myself. And maybe... Maybe that's the wrong way to live into our authenticity. And maybe we are perfect and whole even if we're missing a piece. My elders taught me, as they, your elders may have taught you, that it's not okay to lie, that lying is a terrible thing to do. 
which it is, except when <laughs> it comes to telling people something they don't want to hear. My brother and I learned that lesson on the day that we were home alone, which was a mis tragic mistake my mother made often. And we had decided to experiment. I don't know what possessed us, but we decided to experiment. We wanted to find out just how flammable her perfume was. <laughs> Hand to God, we did. But we wanted to do it safely, so we did it on the toilet seat which was made of wood. <laughs> the results were predictable. Confessing to it when she got home did not seem to be the right thing to do. <laughs> no matter what we did, it wasn't going to be the right thing. And she actually didn't notice for a little while, but she, eventually she did, and the whole parental unit noticed, and it was terrible, and I'm scarred for life, but anyway. But learning to lie or to be silent in order to protect ourselves is another way of compromising our integrity. I'll tell you another story from, it's actually really one of the most, the experiences in my life that I am most grateful for. In the early 1980s, when I moved back to Philadelphia, I, I uh, trained for and volunteered for an organization called Women Organized Against Rape, which is still in, in powerfully strong and doing its work in Philadelphia. But at the time, it was one of the first straight out powerful advocacy organizations for women who were survivors of, uh, of any kind of, of sexual violence. And so I, I learned so much from them, and they trained me, and, and, and it, was, it just became a, a, a part of me. But one of the things I did was to answer the hotline. We sat in hospitals to, to, to be with, with folks who, were, who, needed, who needed accompaniment. But on that hotline, People would call in, most of them identified as women, not, not all, but people would call, and sometimes, more than once, there would be people who had endured a kind of, of assault maybe many, many decades before and had never spoken to anyone about it. I remember speaking to a woman who was 90 years old. And at 90, she had the courage to pick up the phone and call the hotline and share with me what had happened, how it made her feel, and how it impacted her ability to feel joy and to feel free. And at that moment when we talked, I remember feeling the honor and the deep compassion, really deep compassion. But she also talked about the lightness that she felt for the first time. You know, there's no time limit. There's no time limit for us to grow into 
our full, authentic, authentic selves. In Adrienne Marie Brown's invitation, in the Me Too movement and, and, and many other many other movements for, for justice and equity. There is an invitation for us to think about what integrity means for us and to what extent we have minimized our needs and our beliefs in order to privilege the needs and beliefs of others or indeed to privilege and maintain systems that we all live within, systems, systems of oppression. I don't want to be flippant, but I can't sometimes help myself. You know, I told my kids there was a Santa Claus resolutely <laughs> as long as I could possibly get away with it. I still think that's a benign, I, I still think that's a benign thing to say. But other kinds of untruths, other kinds of untruths maintain, maintain systems that privilege freedom for some and not freedom for the rest of us. Our integrity, our commitment to our integrity has an impact. It's not just an impact in our own lives. It's an impact in the kinds of communities, the kinds of families, the kinds of causes, our ability to do, our ability to do good. I want to share with you before before we close this morning uh, a uh, the story of one of our elders, one of our ancestors in the Unitarian faith. Those of you who were in the lunch bunch this week will 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 find her story familiar. I want to share with you the story of Margaret Fuller, who is an inspiration to me of many things for her courage, for her intelligence, for her willingness to, to, to be different and be her authentic self. But perhaps most importantly, for her willingness and her yearning to integrate the pieces of her life and the pieces of herself that seemed to be completely separate. So Margaret Fuller was born in 1810, years, a few years before the Baltimore sermon that made Unitarian not a dirty word anymore. But her parents were Unitarian, and she had a younger brother who, who died when she, was, when she was fairly young. She was born into a certain level of, of privilege, as many in, in our faith have been. And by the time she was nine years old, she was reading and writing literary critiques in four languages. She had translated Cicero and Horace. She was the first woman to ever set foot in the Harvard Library. <laughs> Yay, Margaret! She became, in her lifetime, one of the most sought-after and most highly paid lecturers in the young 
United States. She was an avid social justice warrior. She fought uh, for abolition, for the abolition of slavery, and, and very much for the rights of women. She was an one of the main inspirations for Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, whose names are, are, are probably familiar to you. She wrote a book on women in the 19th century that was one of the most important books of the entire century. This is a woman whose accomplishments and whose impact are indisputable. In addition to all of that, she was the first editor. She was one of the transcendentalists. We talk about them, talked about them a few weeks ago. She was the first editor of the Transcendentalist magazine, which was, of course, Unitarians mostly, at the behest of Ralph Waldo Emerson. But Margaret Fuller was also a survivor of family abuse. In autobiography that she wrote that was not published in her lifetime, she described her father's treatment of her, and I won't go into huge detail, but one of the things that he did, he had designated himself her tutor. He would wake her up at night and force her to come into his study and repeat to him everything that she had learned during the day. Her learning, her intelligence, her intellect came at a huge cost. Emerson came to respect her, although he publicly said that he thought she was ugly. His, her voice bothered him. It was too nasal for his taste. And he felt that she was, you know, too full of herself. Any of these criticisms sound familiar? We're still saying that about women. Powerful women, aren't we? When Margaret Fuller's father died, she was 25. And in that period after his death, she made a decision and she wrote about this. So the words I'm going to use are her words. She said, I want to integrate my masculine intellect and my feminine emotions. She felt that the two things, and you can understand why, the two things just couldn't coexist. So here's what happened. She was taking care of a, of a young woman, a neighbor, who happened to be at the end of her life. She had tuberculosis, and she'd also had an abortion. This was a woman who was, you know, she was despised for what she had quote-unquote done. And Margaret was holding her because at that point there was nothing to do except hold her and comfort her and be with her. And what she felt as she looked into this young woman's face was this overwhelming love. 
she describes, I don't remember the exact words, but this experience of recognizing in that moment that God, the divine, is in each of us. And the sacred, the divine, is in each of us in that place where we are capable of pure love. This is a powerful contribution to who you and I are right now. This is a woman who took these steps 200 years ago in our, in our faith. She had an argument with Emerson not too long after that where he was, I'm not a big fan of Emerson, so I'm going to try not to be like, mean about him but anyway he they were observing some phenomenon of nature and he wanted her to 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 feel the eternal questions that come like how did this come to be and what does this mean and all of this and she's like i don't care about that (laughs) it's enough for me to be in this moment this moment is full and then she said to him your god is truth My God is love. So you see that continuum from that moment when she said, I feel fragmented and broken. I I want these parts of me to be, to come together. And then she had this experience, and that experience healed her. And by by ancestry in a way, I think it brings healing to us. It brings healing to us too. Now, she went to Italy to write write um, journalism on the, the politics in Italy, which were a mess. She met a handsome nobleman who was 10 to 15 y- years younger than her. They fell in love, they got married, and they had a child. So there is life after spiritual experiences. <laughs> our faith, dear ones, invites us to bring our whole selves. Bring our whole selves, to bring our questions, to bring our bo- broken parts, to bring the spaces where we think another outside piece should fit perfectly. Our faith invites us to affirm life, to affirm goodness, to affirm wholeness, and to lean into our integrity. Amen. Ashe, and blessed be.